Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. Hey everyone, this is Kyle. I wanted to give one just brief note of context. The episode that you're about to listen to was recorded over a month ago, and that'll be true for a few of our upcoming episodes as well. I know that for many of us, our attention has been drawn to Israel in recent days, some of the ongoing events happening there and in the Middle East. These episodes that you're going to hear will continue to explore the story of Exodus as we follow along with God's covenant-keeping promises to His people. I know that for many of us in this season, we are praying, praying that God would mend things with his mercy, that he would bring his grace to bear on impossible situations, and that he would thwart the purposes of evildoers. We ask that you would continue to pray in the churches that you're a part of, that God would move in power and in might. These episodes will not be exploring current events, cultural events. It's not what Knowing Faith has done, is, or will do in the future, but we will continue to follow along with the story of Scripture as it unfolds in Exodus. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Uh, what's up, guys? Hey, Kyle. What's up? Drinking my second cup of coffee over here. Well, second cup of coffee is the... Uh, I was going to try to come up with some catchy phrase. I can't. Don't do I haven't had my okay, second cup of coffee. We got an espresso. I think I told you guys for our 30, no. mm-hmm. 30 year anniversary because Jeff and I super diehard romantics. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, you know where I had it, JT. So like I had it on a trip one time and it was great, but then I had it at your house. You guys have right. one down in your basement. Basement, yeah. And I stumbled out there one morning and helped myself to some of that. And I felt like a superhero after I drank it. <laughs> so yeah, I, so I've had two cups this morning, but the truth is you really only need one. And so I could I could conquer a small nation right now. Wow. Okay. I don't well, let's that. well let's talk about let's talk about the one who has conquered a large nation. I did Ooh. that for you, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. It's my gift to you. I uh, and I receive it for what it was. Um, we are uh, following along in the journey of Exodus. We're using the storyline of Exodus to explore biblical themes that both ripple before and beyond the Exodus story itself. This is a little bit different than other seasons where we've gone kind of line by line through a book of the Bible. We're following the broad narrative, so we're not trying to skip ahead or kind of go all over the place piecemeal, but we're not also going line by line. And you've picked up on that so far. If you haven't been following along with the story, you can go back and listen in the archives and kind of catch up with where we're at right now. But at this point, we are at the the end of the plagues. We, we left two of them really off the table from discussion in our last episode where we talked about the biblical theme of the power of God triumphing 
over the false gods of the world. And we saw that this is not just a theme that we find in Exodus. We see it in Genesis, and it also ripples beyond Exodus throughout the rest of the story of the Bible all the way up uh, until the end of the story in the book of Revelation, where it's once again put in full relief. We didn't really cover darkness and death, and we're going to focus on the last plague today, uh, the plague of the firstborn. But I, I do think there is a connection, even mm-hmm. as we think about the story of Scripture between darkness and death. And I think it actually factors in significantly to another death of the firstborn, so to speak, that we'll get to. For today, JT, if you have your Bible, would you read just Exodus that 11? like a comment about systematic theologians. <laughs> it was. My Bible. If you was, own a Bible, JT, <laughs> if you, could, if you yeah. could look underneath your bothing volumes and find that old thing <laughs> that has... Dust it off. Has that, lenses that's the inspired yeah, word of God. Um, and could you just read Exodus 11? Um, I think that would be a good passage for us, just top to bottom, one through 10. Yep. Thank you. You got it. Exodus 11, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold items. The Lord gave the people favor with the Egyptians. In addition, Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry and anguish throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All of these officials of yours will come down to me and bow before me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will get out. And he went out from Pharaoh's presence, fiercely angry. Verse 9, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. Okay. Now, there's quite a bit of death in the plagues, and this factors in significantly to the deliverance story of Israel. We've already encountered that the story of Israel's deliverance is one that involves an uncomfortable amount of death, right? I mean, like when we—the story— begins right with Pharaoh what what where do we where do we find ourselves as it pertains to death with the uh, w- uh with the story of of Exodus Jen at the beginning well so I there are a couple of important things to remember first of all I mentioned in our previous episode that one of the curious questions we should ask is why are there 10 plagues mm-hmm. like why not just have one and so that matters for this discussion. And then what has previously occurred in this story also matters. Um, first, the why are there 10 plagues question, because by the time we get to this one where death is, you know, the death of the firstborn is occurring, Pharaoh has had nine opportunities to repent. 
And so what we see is the Lord's slowness to judge that he offers repeated times yeah. for Pharaoh to, to repent. And Pharaoh does not take them so that by the point that we come to the death of the firstborn, um, because we jump into these stories in the middle and don't read the whole story all in one sweep, we're like, why is God killing the firstborn? Um, but really, the instrument of the death of the firstborn of Egypt is Pharaoh. Pharaoh has brought judgment on his own people because he has not repented. And not only that, but it's a very neatly done story because Pharaoh is the one who attempted to bring this very judgment on the children of Israel at the opening of the story. And so, whereas Pharaoh did not just command the death of the firstborn males of Israel, he demanded the death of every male in Israel. Here, the God of Israel responds in kind, but to a lesser degree, and that's important for us to note, by requiring the firstborn only in, in this particular plague. So um, those are really, really important things for us to pay attention to. We tend to look at this and say, well, why is God um, over over punishing or overreacting. Um, but if God is capable of over punishing or overreacting, then he has lied to us about his justice um, because justice cannot over punish or overreact. Um, he is not being cruel or harsh. He is, um, he is doing exactly um, the, the punishment that fits the crime. That's right. That's right. And now, I think this story relies pretty significantly on understanding that for firstborn language and the firstborn status in the ancient world is different than how we often think about firstborn. Okay. So, and um, JT Jen, feel free to jump in here. I'm just going to give you really quickly, like when we think about the firstborn language in the ancient world, we are talking about the firstborn son who is the rightful heir mm -hmm. of the family's responsibility and benefits. Mm -hmm. So the firstborn status, you know, I know that there's, you know, in the parenting world and thinking through kids, I know that now there are different things that we say are like kind of funny or caricatures or stereotypes of what it means to be a firstborn child. But in the global West, we as a, as a norm do not attach the kind of social status and familial status that the ancient world attached to being a firstborn child. Mm -hmm. It was a huge deal to be the firstborn. And we see this all throughout the story of the Bible. That language is used regularly to try to communicate to the reader, this person has a standing that is unique in their household. So the death of the firstborn, uh, again, is not the indiscriminate killing of a child. It is saying something about the generational lineage of these homes that would suffer that. It, it really is a tremendous kind of loss in terms of thinking through how the family moves, how Egypt is going to carry. Like you think about the death of the firstborn as a plague is almost a, a, a statement on, guess what, Egypt? Your time is done. Mm -hmm. That like part of the plague of the firstborn is this sweeping statement that's being made, which is the next generation of Egypt is gone. It signals the death of a nation. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, and now I, I think that even knowing that, I think, JT, I'm going to put you on the spot here because 
I saw this one. This is the one I don't want (laughs) to answer. And I don't know that I'm going to, I'm going to steer away from Jen here on this one. Like why, why all the death? Like Mm. it's a tremendous amount of death in the Exodus story. Mm -hmm. We don't have a scale. Like we don't get like hard numbers here, but I think that given Pharaoh's response, we have a sense that it was seismic. It was significant enough. And we know it's not going to stop here. Like we we do know, I mean, not to spoil the rest of the story, but like we know that Pharaoh will go, you know what? Actually, I am going to chase them down. And there's gonna, there's more death coming in this deliverance story. Like a tremendous amount more. Like why all the death? Man, I, I'm going to do my best to answer. Listeners, be gracious to me uh, as, as we, we try to kind of navigate this because I think sometimes some of our modern sensibilities can maybe be a bit triggered or overwhelmed when we think about death. The Bible talks about death as God's first enemy. I mean, this is his first and last enemy. His last enemy to be defeated will be death. But also the wages of sin, Romans tells us, is death. And this is exactly what God says in Genesis chapter 3, that you were taken out of the dust and to dust you will return. And so I think when when we get so shocked by the over, and we should be shocked, like we are meant to be shocked here, uh, not just by the death of uh, in Pharaoh's house or of this uh, young girl that uh, Exodus chapter 11 talks about. Every single, like one of the things that I think I want our listeners to hear is there is not one home in Egypt that does not experience death. Not one. And that includes Israelite homes too, right? It's not just Egyptian homes that experience death. They experience the death of the firstborn. But every Israelite home experienced the death of a lamb. Mm-hmm. And that is gruesome also. Those things are not parallel in terms of how we should feel morally about them. But there is death everywhere. There is l- quite literally blood running through the streets of Egypt. There is blood running through the fields. And it is because of the human proclivity towards sinfulness and God's just judgment against our uh, desire to walk away from him. And so one of the things that Exodus chapter 11 says uh, in verse seven, he says, the Lord make, it says the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That's true. But the ultimate distinction is not the distinction between Egypt and Israel. It's the distinction between those covered by the blood of the lamb and those not covered by the blood of the lamb, yeah. because there is death and there is blood in every single house. So, uh, it says, I will, verse, this is chapter 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord, and I execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. And as we talked about in our last episode, that isn't just Egyptians who might have been worshiping those false gods. That includes Israelites. They were in need of a substitute sacrificial lamb so that God is still executing judgment against the houses of Israel. It's just that they have a stand-in, a substitution, a propitiatory lamb that stands in their place. So why all the death? Because all the sin. And why, so in, in maybe in some sense, I'm going to overstate this kind of in preacher voice. We should be just as shocked as, at our sin as we are about all the death. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would just add, we yeah. should be, we should direct our anger at the serpent who said, you will not mm. surely die. And that, that's what he said. And he, he lied, you know, and that, that's what, that's a lot of what we see play out here is the mass and tonnage of that lie that we we maybe just, you know, we don't want to think about it we because we want to, um, just to, to bring it to application rapidly like Kyle likes to do. I'm just kidding. We want to be like, well, I'm not doing big sins. I'm just doing right. small sins that don't 
that don't merit death, you know? And so these stories, I think, do make us just confront, uh, like I said, the the sheer tonnage of, of sin and its consequences. Um, but it's not, we should not say, therefore, these stories are easy to read mm. um, and get over it. Um, I don't think that's, that's what we should say at all. No. I do think that it's supposed, these stories are supposed to make us feel like death is an intrusion that makes us uncomfortable because it is, and it is an enemy. Mm-hmm. And I think we're supposed to recoil from death. How does the death of the firstborn connect with larger themes of judgment, sin, and salvation? Because it does. And I think mm-hmm. I mentioned this in the lead up to it, but the plague that immediately precedes this is the plague of darkness. Mm-hmm. And so there is a the plague of the firstborn happens, so to speak, under the under the shadowy sky, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the death of the firstborn happens in the midst of the darkness. How does this connect uh, with larger themes throughout the story of the Bible? Well, we talked about in a previous episode how when Moses is given signs to take to the children of Israel, and then also to Pharaoh later on in mm-hmm. the story, that the signs that he's given show God's dominion, his rule over um, the created order, over human disease, and then ultimately over death itself. And so um, we're seeing that that theme repeat in um, the nature and order of the plagues. Um, this final plague is going to show that very thing. So the, the power over the created order we see when he's able to throw everything into darkness. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised that there is a connection here to, once again, to the creation account um, in, in reverse order, because we said this is a decreation account. So if you think about that Genesis account, um, what you see is first you see the spirit hovering over the waters waiting to give life and then what do you see next god says let there be light and then what follows after that is an ordering of the waters and the sky and the land and so in the plagues we see those in reverse we see in plagues one through eight a disordering of the waters and the sky and the land then we shouldn't be surprised that the essential statement of the ninth plague is God uttering, let there be darkness. Mm. And that in the 10th plague, we find the spirit hovering over Egypt, waiting to bring not life, but death. That's right. And there are, um, my mind can't help but to go to the cross of Christ in this. Um, you know, we've talked about these themes as themes that ripple before Exodus and beyond Exodus and Ginger mm-hmm. spotlighted one that we've been talking about before. But when I think beyond, I think of Golgotha and I think of darkness covering the face mm-hmm. of the land. I think of the sacrifice of what, of who Colossians says, uh, the firstborn over all creation, mm-hmm. the prototokos, which is the word for firstborn there, meaning the rightful heir, not mm-hmm. necessarily, it's certainly not the author of Colossians saying that the son of God experienced a birth. He, he did not. It's saying that the, the one who was crucified and on that cross disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places under the skies of darkness was the rightful heir of all things. Okay, and so this air thing is a really important combination theme with the Passover lamb that we see 
collide in Revelation because what you'll see is, um, you know, the throne room scene in Revelation chapter four, and John is told that he's going to see the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. So these, those are those are air. That's air language, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, where the the um, the birthright has. Uh, he's the origin and the. Re- recipient of the birthright. Um, But then he turns and he says, and I saw one like a lamb slain. He doesn't see a lion. He doesn't see a root. He sees one like a lamb slain, which is a clear reference to the Passover lamb. And um, the lamb slain is worthy to open a scroll that has seven seals on it, which to the original audience would have been immediately recognizable as the way that the Romans um, enacted a will. A will was a scroll that was sealed with seven seals. It was sealed and witnessed by seven people. And so this is the, the he is both the Passover lamb and the firstborn son now coming to secure his inheritance. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Death is always a part of these deliverance narratives. You know, I think about the author of Hebrews saying, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it's because the consequence of sin is death. When we find these narratives in Scripture, and we find it here in Exodus, or we see it elsewhere, this need for death. JT, a minute ago, you mentioned that the lamb was a propitiatory sacrifice. As we get into the rest of the Pentateuch and the sacrificial system is set up, we are discovering there is an emphasis on the unblemished offering, the prized offering. Um, that That's, I think, one of the reasons why the plague of the firstborn is called for and strikes with such judgment, a profound judgment, because there's this sense in which the firstborn, again, has this prized standing, this treasured thing. Why this need for sacrifice? And does it still linger? Like, is there, like, do, is is death still required for deliverance? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons that we have this, this uh, firstborn understanding is ever since the promise given to Eve is we're supposed to be looking 
to the firstborn, the one who's going to come and deliver us. This is why it's such a shocking story and a shocking narrative that Abraham is going to sacrifice the firstborn son Mm -hmm. who is coming to deliver the world Mm -hmm. in his understanding. This is the son that is going to to make a new nation for Abraham and Sarah's family. So, uh, and that narrative plays out, but specifically you think about Genesis chapter 22, God even provides a sacrificial lamb to take the place of the firstborn son. Mm -hmm. In the gospel account, we see that it is the firstborn son of God, the eternal son of God, who actually is the sacrificial lamb, which Mm -hmm. is what John the Baptist said. Here is the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And that's the story that we see in the Old Testament is these lambs, whether it's the scapegoat uh, that is sent outside the city walls with the sins of Israel to die Mm -hmm. in the wilderness, or it's the lamb that's sacrificed at the altar to be an expiatory or a propitiatory, I'll define those words in a minute, sacrifice as the priest would have uh, been in the Holy of Holies at the very, it's called the Hillisterion, the place at the top of mm-hmm. the Ark of the Covenant where mm-hmm. where forgiveness, where the presence of God is and God's wrath is propitiated. So propitiation means a satisfaction of God's wrath, that the wrath that, that God has towards sin when the blood of the lamb is, is, is sprinkled on the altar, God is propitiated. But what, like, oh, so I'm a, I'm a listener. And you're telling you me that God, <laughs> and you're telling me God's wrath needs to be satisfied. I thought I thought you told me God is love. Mm-hmm. What are we t- like? Is this just the Old Testament? God was a lot more angry and wrathful, and that's why, like, G- like certainly Jesus would have no business with what's happening here, the the death of the firstborn, right? Because he is about love, and this God is clearly about wrath. What am I missing? Yeah, so I don't want to get into like the doctrine of divine simplicity because that'd probably be a little too complicated, but maybe just to give a, a, a simple picture, if God is not a God of wrath, he can't be a God of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he is a God of love, he also must be a God of wrath. When his honor is confronted or even when people sin against him and sin against other people, a loving God punishes sin because sin is the ultimate affront to God and his creation. Sin is any action that is an affront to God and his creation. So a wrathful God is a loving God because he punishes disobedience and wrongdoing. The same way that we would talk about, this is again kind of a human analogy, uh, a parent rightfully forming and shaping his peop- uh, uh, his children or her children by, by punishing disobedience and of course doing it in appropriate ways. And so God, when he is wrathful towards his people, he's not ceasing to be loving. In some sense, he is demonstrating his love, that he desires to be worshipped and for his creation to be cared for in the way that he ultimately meant for it to be. But that's another part of, of God's wrath is, is part of part of sinfulness isn't just that God is wrathful and that it he is now uh, uh, through propitiation, he is satisfied through the blood of the lamb. We can also say in the Old Testament gives us pictures of pictures of this, that Christ is our ultimate expiation, which means those of us who are unclean because of our sinfulness are now cleansed. And so God is. Uh, through those who are in Christ, his wrath has been satisfied and our cleanliness has been, or our uncleanliness has been dealt with and we've been cleansed and been given robes of righteousness. So when we look to the cross of Christ, we see so many types and anti-types, whether it's the firstborn son or the lamb that was slain, or even think about Matthew's language of uh, the rocks split and kind of some imagery to the rock, the, 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 the rock splitting 
for God's people in the wilderness. Christ is the ultimate provision for God's people who are wandering in wilderness as sojourners and strangers, as sinners separated from God. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the water in wilderness as provision. We are covered by his blood. And so I think one one thing that the Bible would, we, we would be remiss if we didn't say this as clearly as I think the Bible says it. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death, eternal separation from God forever. God does not make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He makes a distinction now by those who've been covered by the blood of the Lamb and those who have not. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God, the same way that Israel couldn't make themselves right with God here in Egypt. They needed a sacrifice in their place so that God might peacefully pass over their sins because they have been cleansed and his wrath has been satisfied. And that's exactly what the death of Jesus accomplishes for us, is that he is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the new Moses, the Passover lamb, the rock in the wilderness, who is the ultimate provision vision for all of our needs and offers us now the very presence of God as the ascended king who offers us his spirit. There we go. That was good. Right? That was good. That was good. Yeah. (laughs) That was good, JT. I'll take it. Systematic theologian with the Bible open. We got some game. (laughs) No, I mean, and and I was pressing on you and you know, I was because there is, there are, when we get to these stories, there is this, I think a real and, and I, I don't love, and I see this a lot right now on social media. It, this comes up again and again every five, six, ten years, and that's fine. Honest wrestling, honest questions deserve honest answers. What Francis Schaefer used to say. I don't know how honest many of these questions are at this point, but I do think there's an honest grappling and, and wrestling that occurs when you get to a passage like this, and you're going, "Why is all of this death, death necessary?" Um, and I think what both of you have said has been super helpful. It's just a reminder for me that this is a result of the serpent's deception and humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh, his approach to this was not righteous judgment. Pharaoh was not exercising righteous judgment when he was slaying the innocent children, uh, of Israel or trying to, or attempting Mm -hmm. to. God was exercising righteous judgment in the plague of the firstborn. And you may go, well, what's different between Pharaoh and God? Everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Everything is different. You know, I was talking with somebody through this passage. This is maybe three years ago. And they said, why can God exercise holy judgment? But what Pharaoh is doing is morally wrong. Mm -hmm. And I would say, because God is holy and Pharaoh is not. And I know that like, oh, I know that raises our hackles to feel like, well, you telling me that God can do this because he's holy and righteous and good and his judgment is always holy and righteous and good? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. It's not unreasonably yes. There are good reasons and themes that are being explored here, but part of what we're experiencing, and I think part of what makes people uncomfortable with a lot of the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament that we just are happy to kind of just gloss over because there's a lot of judgment, right? I mean, Jen, you're studying Revelation right now. Does that feel like a judgment-free book in the New I mean, Testament? I mean, I'm like, I'm running out of application questions to write because it's like, yep, here right. we go again. <laughs> I mean, even even like people people forget 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mm -hmm. in the Sermon on the Mount is not lessening judgment against unrighteousness. He's heightening it. Like even in his like even in his ethical exhortations to his people, he's intensifying what God expects from his people, not diminishing. Not diminishing. Yeah. And I think that when we look at the story of the Bible, it it can be easy, but it is naive of us to think that what's happening in Exodus is somehow a wide departure from what we encounter with the holy, loving God of Israel of the Bible, of the world. It's the same, beginning to end. And I think that it's important to know that the solution or the salvation from a broken world marked by the enemy of death comes as the Son of God takes death upon himself. This is not even, this isn't just something that God executes in judgment against the sinfulness of the world. It's something that he takes upon himself in judgment as he is a substitute for the sinfulness of the world. And I think that there is not a kind of calloused detachment from wrath. There is a compassionate absorption of that wrath in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He isn't distant from it. How would you... Maybe I shouldn't pose it as a question, but you're always the one who's throwing the terrible questions our way, Kyle. But how would you uh, relate the statement of if judgment is to happen, let it begin with the house of God? Because uh, let me just tell you where I'm headed with this. It's bad. It it is upsetting to watch the wicked punished, right? Uh, But you know, we all know what's going to happen in a few chapters in this book. It's going to be the children of God who are going to be... um, engaging in idolatry. And I think Jesus, you know, he when he is uh, seen to be angry during his earthly ministry, when we see wrath bubbling under the surface mm-hmm. and sometimes spilling over, it is not um, in relation to the wicked, the, you know, the, the, the earth dwellers. It's in relation to those who are at least presenting as the people of God. Um, he overturns tables in the temple. He gets angry when he is corrected by the religious leaders for healing someone on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I, it's, I don't need an answer to the question. I guess my application point for our listeners would be, as you reflect on these kinds of things, um, the response of the believer should be, I want to, I want to wage war against the the idolatry that is inside of me you know like i i may not be able to topple an earthly power uh but i certainly can wage daily war against um um, against the idolatry that is harbored in my own heart Um, and i can seek to be sure that as i'm looking at where the quote problem lies i'm not always looking outside of the family of god i'm also willing to look within the family of god and say um, how have we begun to look more like the people of the earth than the people of heaven yeah it's a good question mm-hmm. it's a good thought is death good jt no no but it's a but but god works through death to accomplish something that is good right like every good sure. friday service i have to remind our people the good part of Good Friday is not the death. It is not death itself. We're not here to celebrate that death is good and it's a friend that should be greeted because, and, and really, man, the reason I'm asking you this is you're one of the first people who was a dear friend of mine who we were teaching and we were doing theological work together 
but you and your family, you had had to grapple with death in a way at that point when we met each other and we started teaching alongside one another that I had not had to grapple with death yet. And I remember you talking through some of that and it was so helpful for me to consider because I do think there is sometimes just like our cultural imagination, like it's uh you know, it's greeting an old friend. There's this kind of almost like willingness to kind of concede of death is like this good thing, taking us to the, a better world to come. And I think that you could, somebody might listen to what we're saying, but okay, well, God is accomplishing deliverance through death here. Death must have some good but it's not a friend, right, JT? I mean, yeah, and even right now, our family's walking through a number of situations. Of, I mean, nine, my ninety-four-year-old grandfather is currently in hospice, married for seventy-two years, his college sweetheart, and I mean, just a, a and and he's like loves Jesus, and he's like lived a good life. And I'm even kind of grappling with like, man, there's probably a sense where it's better for you to go. You're suffering, and this is hard. So like, I understand the real human element of of realizing we're watching somebody suffer. Uh, Paul even says, "Is it is better for me to be absent from the body and to be present mm-hmm. with the Lord." That's true, but the overarching picture that I think you're trying to paint, Kyle, that I that I believe too is the Bible primarily calls death not a friend but an enemy. So let us never call uh, one of our teachers in the training program used to say, "Let us never call a friend what God calls an enemy." And I think that's true. First uh, Isaiah chapter 25 talks about the, the the veil that is cast over all peoples is death, and one day the Lord will come back and swallow it up. I was even encouraging somebody in our church just uh, a few days ago who's also struggling with death, uh, a death in the family, uh, an impending death in the family, and they're like, "Am I supposed to be there? How do I care for him?" And I. I was reminded in that moment of Jesus and his best friend, Lazarus. Mm -hmm. And Lazarus dies. Jesus isn't there. He shows up and he's highly criticized because did you not care? How could you not be here? Our friend died. And and one of the things that I think Christians can take comfort in is Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead on on the spot. Like he's Jesus Mm. is, he mourns, but he he raises Lazarus from the dead. And I think he does that not to, not to emphasize this life, but to emphasize the next, because Lazarus dies again. One of the things that I think Jesus wants to take away from death isn't that it's good that someone dies because he's mourning Lazarus' death, but to actually emphasize that all of those who die in Christ will one day be raised victoriously forever, that we will ultimately mock Satan, go back to our graves and mock Satan, sin, and death. So we don't want to call a grave good now when at the resurrection we'll say, you're the enemy and we have defeated you. So our hope isn't in five more minutes. It's not even in 50 more years. Uh, Our hope is in the next 50 trillion years uh, that, that the Lord Jesus will come back and ultimately defeat Satan, sin, and death forever. And that's our victory. That's right. That's right. Um, And that's where the story goes for us, because death isn't the end of the story in the Exodus either. Um, While this plague of the firstborn is significant and is kind of the the last uh, straw for Pharaoh, so to speak, is not the end of the story for God's people. Now that Israel has been or Egypt has been decreated, so to speak, there is now going to be this birth of a new people as they emerge out of Exodus. And we'll begin looking at that a little bit next week as we think through the Passover. Uh, If you want to find Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, You may have heard us talk about things on the show, recommend things. If you want to find anything that we've recommended, go to the show notes. If you heard an ad or if you caught something in an ad, go to the show notes or go to the website, trainthechurch.com and find the Knowing Faith page. And you can find everything that we've talked about there, including the show notes. If you've heard us recommend a book, 
on this episode or any previous episode, go click the 10 of those link in our show notes and you can find all of the books that we have recommended on every episode of Knowing Faith throughout the seasons, including this one, over uh, with our friends over at 10 of those. So go check that out. Um, If you want to find out how you can uh, follow along with us in a newsletter that we have that comes out monthly or help make these shows possible, you can go to trainthechurch.com slash support. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.